You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight is going to be part two of the little plant series that I've been running with Zach Goodnow of Equatorial Ecosystems. And we're going to get into Macravia and a couple of other topics that uh, we weren't quite able to cover in the last episode. So if you haven't checked out the episode on aeroids, go back and give that a listen because there's a lot of um, a lot of really interesting content in there. And we're going to get into a little bit more, but we're also going to focus on Macravia because that's really going to be the uh, focus of the show. But before that, I want to just thank everyone who uh, gave the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Uh, it's a great way to get the show out there to a wider audience. So if you have a chance, you're liking the show, easiest, simplest thing that you can do to support me in the show is leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That's really what makes or breaks a podcast. So if you have a chance, leave a nice five-star review, uh, and that's a great way to support the show. Another great way to support the show, if you're interested, check out the Patreon page. For the $5 tier, you will get a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And if you are a commercial business or an establishment that is looking to do a uh, more of a sponsorship, I now have a tier for that as well. Uh, go check out the Patreon page. And again, if you're a business or anything like that, feel free to email me about that. I can give you some more information. So other than that, let's get back on track here with uh, Macravia. And uh, Zach, welcome again. Uh, thank you for joining me the last time. It's a pleasure to have you again. Thank you for having me again. My, my pleasure, as always. So <laughs> uh, let's... Um, I, I want to. I don't want to pick up exactly where we left off because we were the last time we spoke. We kind of ended up talking about the importation process and about how certain plants uh, are under under CITES. We mentioned orchids. We talked about a few other things. So I don't, I don't want to recap too much, but I do want to ask before we get into Macravia, while we're kind of on the um, the import export angle of the plant game. What should someone do to quarantine a plant? And, and I'm going to give you a kind of a two-part question on this. Let's just say that you receive a new import that you want to quarantine, not just to protect other plants, but also your frogs. And what should you do to quarantine or treat a new cutting that you've got from, let's just say here in the States, obviously from our listeners who live here in the States. So can you give us kind of a breakdown in terms of those two situations and what we should do? Yeah, so... I'll actually do that. And then I, I have a third one as well from kind of a second here in the U S um, as far as for, if you get an import or if you get a plant that came from somebody that is reselling a recent import, what I would do, I, that would never go straight into a, a planted tank with dart frogs or, or any kind of animal for one reason being, you don't know, how it was processed, you know, from country of origin to where it is now. But also because most often than not, if you're importing, you're getting something that's relatively new to the hobby. It's a little more expensive than what you would get as just, you know, a basic cub cutting from a another hobbyist here or something like that. You don't want that plant to, you, you don't want to throw it in a tank and just expect it to adapt and then have it die which in a lot of times there is an acclimation period for things like Mark Gravia, but also for, for plenty of other plant species. So I'll set it kind of aside in its own container, whether it's, you know, a plastic bin with sphagnum or, or some kind of substrate on the bottom or in some of my 
other grow areas where, you know, if I, if I import plants, I'm importing a, a block, you know, a box at a time. And so I get a number of plants that I plan out and I kind of have a separate area where I can close those off and, and get them acclimated, but also make sure there's nothing, there's no pests on them. And, you know, it's, I may not, if it's a new to the hobby kind of genus or, or species where we don't know a ton about it, I am kind of hesitant to use chemicals on it because, again, I don't want to you know, spray something that I just paid $50 for down and, and have it drop all of its leaves overnight. That That's kind of a bummer because you have to go through you know, the whole importation process plus the, the price of something like that. So I kind of I keep them humid, but I avoid getting them wet. I try to, you know, if I water it, I, I water the substrate. I try to keep water off the leaves initially. That's especially important for begonias and gisneriads and, and Gravia. And I just kind of allow them to have moist substrate, not soaking wet, and really, really high humidity. Because these things are, if it came from another country, it was unpotted or it was clipped. It was thrown in a box. It traveled days to get to the United States and then it traveled days to get from where, how, you know, it's port of entry to you. And so it may be dehydrated. It, the roots may be at a minimum disturbed, probably some minimal damage. Some things come in with, with no roots and that's just kind of the name of the game. So get it in, keep it real humid to prevent it from dehydrating and to minimize that transpiration out of the leaves. And then when I start to see signs of it, actively growing, whether it's, you know, the roots are filling the pot or it's starting to put on vegetative growth. Most of the time, I'll just propagate from that. I'll treat that as like a mother plant that never goes into a terrarium. And I'll take the the new growth that was kind of produced in the semi-terrarium conditions that I put in, you know, that I established it in and move that into the terrarium because it's more adapted to my temperatures, my humidity. And then once it puts down roots, that's when I feel a little more comfortable about getting leaves wet and that kind of stuff. Because if I crash a leaf or two by getting it wet, at least there's a root base that, that is going to allow it to come up. So that's how I would treat an imported plant. A plant that came from a hobbyist that's you know pretty widely grown. We understand it. It's been around for a little while. If it came from another frog tank or if it came from potentially came from a frog tank putting it in putting it through a 10 percent or so bleach dip uh, typically doesn't hurt it i wouldn't necessarily do that for certain orchids just because they're sensitive to water quality and, and those kinds of things but margravia aeroids that kind of stuff a, a 10 percent bleach dip isn't going to hurt it and that's going to knock out a lot of the the nasty stuff that that may come with it it's also from a, a a frog hobbyist, so you don't necessarily have to worry about pesticides and fertilizers and, and that kinds of stuff. The third, uh, I guess, scenario would be if you get it from a local nursery or, you know, now even some of the big box stores are producing more popular uh, house plants. You know, you can go there and, and to, to a Lowe's and find some of the really popular house plants in for relatively little money. But the concern with that is what kind of pesticides was it exposed to? What kind of fertilizers was it exposed to? So when I bring something like that home, 
I take it out of the substrate. It's normally some kind of a soil with perlite, which is, you know, that's not overly conducive to putting in a tank. Hose all the substrate off, pot it in sphagnum moss or some kind of a, a mix, an ABG or, or even, you know, straight turfus. Really give it a heavy rinse and then kind of set it aside and treat it like I do the imported plants. And, you know, keep that set aside for a month or so to allow anything that was on it to kind of wash off and degrade and then propagate the new growth that was that that's grown in my conditions and use that now as my my start in a tank. Okay, makes sense. When you talk about a bleach dip though, I've I've heard of that before and I've done it myself, but how long should you dip a plant in a 10% bleach solution for it to be effective? I mean, are we talking about just like a quick dip or are we talking about letting it sit there for a while? I wouldn't let it sit for a long time, but, you know, a, a couple, you know, 10 minutes or so isn't isn't going to hurt anything. And, and that's probably enough contact time to for it to, you know, have the effect that it's going to have. And that will kill anything that might be transmissible to other plants. I mean, obviously not everything, but... Um, I'd had another another guest on the show a, a while back, and he was talking about, and for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it, but it was some sort of a pest that worked its way through a lot of his vivarium plants before he was able to kind of get it under control. But like things like arthropods and, um, I don't know, snails or anything like that, that'll reduce their numbers or, or wipe them out? It's going to reduce the... It'll definitely reduce the numbers. It will wipe certain things out. It, it's going to kill certain microbes. Um, you know, that was always back. I guess I kind of came up in dart frogs when, you know, chytrid was a big deal. And, and every other day you got on dendroboard and, and there was another thread about chytrid. And that was what you always saw to combat chytrid was to dip your plants. And and so it, it is supposedly effective. I haven't dug into the scientific literature, but it is supposedly effective against a number of microbes. Snails are a different animal because they're able to kind of close themselves up in their shell. And snails can be a real big pest. And the best way to get rid of them is when you see them to mechanically remove them uh, or to you know do some kind of a trap, either a, a beer trap overnight or put lettuce in the bottom of your, your enclosure and just manually remove it and, and reduce their numbers. It, it may kill the eggs. If there are you know tiny eggs on there, dipping it in the bleach may have an effect on those. As far as plant pathogens, it would probably, you know, kill some, it's obviously not going to kill all. And one of the big things in the plant world right now, or at least in, in aeroids is this mosaic virus stuff. And that's going through a number of imported plants and, and it actually causes a, the, the leaves on these infected plants that are showing symptoms actually kind of look like a mosaic. They have this weird modeling that you may mistake as variegation. And um, there's a number of different mosaic viruses that can affect plants. And some of them, they're, they're passed by, by crossing of, of tissue fluids. And so some of them can be crossed by if you cut, you know, you're taking cuttings, you cut a plant and you forget to sterilize in between and you cut another one, you can introduce it that way. Other, you know, sucking insects like 
um, you know, thrips or aphids or something like that can, you know, like a mosquito goes to you and you know, sucks your blood and then goes to the next person and, and, and does it. A thrip or an aphid can do the same thing and suck the fluids out of one plant and move to the next and, and viruses can be passed that way. The bleach dip's not going to do any good for something like that. And there's really no cure for the virus. So the, the really the only way to combat that is to just trash the plant and start over. Uh, it should do a decent amount on the, the microbial pathogens and also a number of insects to where you're, again, you're balancing, you know, you don't want to be too harsh on a, on a new plant that may be a cutting. You don't want to be too harsh on, you know, this plant that you're about to put in a tank with amphibians, but you also, because of those two things, you may not be harsh enough to completely eradicate certain pests. What about the, and this is my last question, then we'll get into Mark Ravia, but when it comes to the acclimation part and getting a new plant started, how important is a daylight-night cycle? And by that, I mean, obviously, my vivariums are all on timers. They get about 12 hours of daylight and about 12 hours of dark. Is it better off for a plant to acclimate with just 24 hours of straight light exposure constantly, or do you want to have that day-night cycle in there as well? No, you you still want the the day-night cycle, and largely because you know plants. We we when we're young, we're taught that you know the plants are the producers, and and the things that eat the plants are the consumers, and so you're you naturally think, all right, well, plants photosynthesize and you know consumers respire but plants also go through the same respiration process that we do they just make their own food that then they consume we just consume the plants and that's where our energy comes from so photosynthesis is occurring during the day and then when the sun goes down and they're not getting any more light energy exposure photosynthesis ends and they do begin to respire so they're making that sugar and carbohydrates during the day through photosynthesis, and then they 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 burn it, you know, when they're when their lights are when they're not exposed to light. So no, I would never. You know, there's there's been experiments where people expose. I think I think years ago somebody did it with pitcher plants, and they exposed their pitcher plant seedlings to um, high high long day lengths, and and they were able to grow the plants to a a much more mature size in a season than they did than you know the plants that had normal day lengths. But eventually, a plant's going to burn out if it's exposed to constant light. It, it can't sustain it forever. I remember that from uh, from science class in middle school about uh, yeah plants in the day and night cycle. But I don't know. I was always curious if you could kind of cheat the cheat the system, I guess. But so let's let's get into Macravi. Why don't we start off simple? Why don't we um, what what is Macravia? Why don't we start with that? What what is it, and what are some different species or cultivars? Or just start at the beginning. Give us kind of a description of them. So Macravia are essentially woody vines that occur entirely in the the New World, so Central South America, the Caribbean. Um, they range from a number of the Caribbean islands. I think they occur on St. Lucia and a few of the, the Caribbean islands. And then 
I don't know exactly where in Central America they start, but I know there's species in Costa Rica. So, so, you know, at least as far north as Costa Rica, probably Nicaragua. And then they range, you know, into South America, at least into Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, um, and Suriname. There's not a ton of information on the, I guess the, the, the botany and, and the taxonomy of Mark Gravia, because I don't think it's a incredibly well-studied genus. They act similar to how we talked about in aeroids, where they start out in a juvenile form, where it's more of a vertical climbing, shingling species. And then as they put on biomass and, and get higher light exposure, they transition to a pendant so they they actually climb up the trunk of a tree and then once they reach a certain size they'll either you know go off on a branch and hang down or they roll back and and hang down and then when they eventually flower the flower is suspended from the vine i want to say the vast majority of them are bat pollinated if i remember right um so so the flowers are are primarily geared towards nocturnal animals um as far as species in the hobby, you don't have a lot of described species. You have a lot of undescribed species or undescribed forms of species that people just put descriptors on. So uh, you have Rectiflora, you have Umbellata, you have Centinicii. I'm trying to think if there's any more species that are actually described where they have a binomial genus and species. But then you also end up with a number of, you know, species Suriname and Alcoca and um, these species peach and, and that Colombian species that, that has the white vein or the, the white rimmed leaves. So, so there's a, there's a ton of forms or, or, you know, in quote species that we grow that aren't actually described. Obviously, Mark Ravi is a, not as diverse as aroids. I mean, aroids obviously we discuss is, is huge, but how did Mark Ravia get into the hobby? Because at least to me, in my you know tenure of keeping exotics and building vivariums, it seems relatively recent. How'd they make their way into the hobby? So when I started in the hobby, there was only very few. There, there was what we call Rectiflora species Suriname. I remember one of the the old time plant growers in the hobby had a species from Costa Rica that he got from Atlanta Botanic Gardens, and that was about all you saw. And I assume that most of those species originated probably from ABG, but but again you know, most likely from botanical gardens. And I distinctly remember probably two years into me being in the hobby, there was a, a, a terrarium on Dendra board and it was kind of a tall, it, it wasn't a front opening. This was before the, the mass use of the, the front opening, you know, catered terrariums. I, I want to say this was more of just a tall fish tank style enclosure. And the background was, you know, that dark tree fern. And there was 
either Rectiflora or species Suriname that was just perfectly almost like train tracks, just just checkered across that background. And it just produced the most the, the most perfect look. And that was kind of my introduction to shingling plants. And back then, this, the, the minute an ad for Mark Gravia went up on that site, they were sold out in you know 10 minutes. And that was back when Rectiflora species Suriname, which are now today, you know, $5 a cutting kind of you know, people throw out more cuttings than they sell probably. And those are selling for $20, $30 a cutting at that time. And, you know, you couldn't, if you weren't on the site, the minute the ad popped up, you didn't get it. And for a number of years, that was what you, what you got was Rectiflora or species Suriname. The, the Costa Rican species from ABG was, it, is really hard to grow and, and just doesn't take to cutting well. So that was never very widespread. And then I guess probably 2013, 14 or so, there was a guy who was able to import some pots of umbelata, which is the, the species that has the white central vein, and then centenisii, which is the species that has really long leaves and the, the new leaves are kind of this reddish orange from Ben's jungle in Europe. And he was just getting them in and, and able to sell them in four inch pots. And back then, you know, even those species were selling 50, $75 at the drop of a hat, which was, that was you know, recently house plants have, have exploded in price. And, you know, there's crazy prices for plants, but $50 for a terrarium plant back then was a lot of money and, you know, just gone in a heartbeat. And, so that introduced those two species. And then you had a couple of growers that were just real specialty plant people that maybe traveled to the tropics and, and got things years ago, you know, pre-CITES or, or, you know, they went down to South America on collecting trips and they had all these oddball things. So you had introductions like that Colombian, um, I forget what they, the, the, the species is, dark green and low light and then just the very edge of the leaf was was this perfect white rim so you you started seeing some of those pop up and then i guess 2015 to 17 there was a grower in ecuador who started selling more terrarium plants he was actually a former equigenera employee and he broke off and did his own thing and started selling terrarium plants. And you saw he introduced dozens of, of new, what I'll call forms. And, and there were, you know, these, they looked like umbelata, but they had, you know, red tinged leaves or some of these fantastic leaves that are, they're, they're green leaves, but the entire edge is serrated and looks like feathers. And uh, that's where, you know, the alcoca came from, which is the very large, you know, dark purple, almost black leafed one. And, and that species is interesting in that it doesn't stay in its juvenile form very long at all. You could have a six inch vine that decides to go adult and, and you know, produce this pendant growth. That's it, it's extremely stunning because the juvenile form is small and kind of round and rambles. And then you end up with these large, you know, three inch long leaves on a on a pendant vine um so that was kind of one of the that that species kind of set the 
the popularity of them again they they when all of these new things started coming in they were kind of the it plant and then once everybody kind of had the most popular or the most common species they they kind of died down and something else took its place and then when all these things started coming in from ecuador again they really they they had kind of a renaissance and and they took over and now there's probably you know 30 to 50 forms in the hobby and i'd say the vast majority of them originated in ecuador and came some from that grower and then some of the other prominent nurseries there also caught on and they have their own little forms of different things and and so some have come from those as well but the vast majority of plants in the hobby at least originated out of that ecuadorian nursery i would assume they're all primarily ecuadorian in origin too what are some pros and cons of keeping margravia i mean obviously other than the aesthetic beauty of it but like what are some what are some what are some pros and cons as opposed to some other plants in terms of uh in terms of uh, vivarium that's a there are a plant that i wouldn't say has a ton of utility it, as far as frog husbandry you you don't it's not something that that you use for a, a reason I, I guess and and i say that you know because i've said about aeroids that a number of them provide good you know perching sites or cover or shading areas for frogs or you know the the easy answer is you know bromeliads and and the fact that they allow for tadpole rearing and and wide leaves for egg laying with with margravia they're they're more for us they provide a nice look but they're not necessarily used specially for for anything you know they, the frogs may lay eggs on the leaves because the leaves are kind of smooth and and can be wide on a on a branch but they're not they don't provide a lot of cover because typically the leaves are i guess they can if if it gets to the top of the tank and kind of forms a clump it can provide a mass for the, the frogs to get behind but just you know from a, a lead of margravia growing it, it's not necessarily going to do a whole lot to benefit your husbandry but they do you know they are aesthetically pleasing so obviously they're not something that you'd want to build a whole vivarium around you i mean obviously no one's going to set up a whole vivarium with nothing but margravi in it right right yeah it would be something that that you know you'd use as a as a kind of what i call accent plants it it, it makes a nice show but you need something else to to make the tank work well, how do we get them to propagate inside the vivarium? Because earlier you'd mentioned tree fern panels, which I know are kind of, if you can get them, they're really expensive. I have a few that I've mm -hmm. actually been saving for years to do like a, <laughs> to do like a really nice, nice build, but I haven't gotten to that point yet. So with a lot of the common alternatives, the polyurethane foam backgrounds or cork backgrounds or, um, uh, some of the like the the, the pumice uh, stones and things like that. What are some good options to have in a vivarium to get Makravi to to grow up and do its thing? So I found the the best way to get it started in a tank is to take your cutting and cuttings don't necessarily need to be rooted. They root relatively easily if they are given the right conditions and and most cuttings 
when you when you cut them off of something already have what people call the the, the feeler roots where it's just you know they might be just using it as an attachment to the background or, or whatever it was growing on but just in the open air the humidity is high enough that that it does form roots so you know you have your cutting what i tell people is put it on moist sphagnum don't miss the leaves keep the leaves dry because i find that unrooted margravia cuttings resent wet leaves and just keep it humid and initially they're not very fast they're they're you know people look at these things after two weeks and they're like well you know you sent me a dud why isn't it growing and i found and this is pretty common across plants but it seems very common with with margravia is that it has to put down roots before it's going to start pushing vegetative growth it it'll establish a root system not necessarily a huge one but it's going to put down some roots and then you'll see it start to vine so a lot of times what i'll tell people to do is is if they have an established frog tank that they're just moving a piece to aside from you know whatever quarantine procedures they follow put it in a bin and keep it humid and get it rooting and don't move it into a tank until you see the the stem start to elongate you start to see new leaves on the end and you know the best way to accomplish that is to use something like sphagnum moss on the bottom so that then you just kind of pick up the sphagnum pad once it's growing set it on a branch low low in the tank and then let it start or set it kind of up against the background where the the rooted part is in the soil and then the tip is kind of makes a perpendicular turn and, and it starts up a background and i found once it has roots and a moisture source so in that case it would be whatever it's getting out of the substrate it'll grow i mean when i was in my in my college apartment i had just let margravia grow to the top of the tank and it it was one of those i don't know exoterra zoomed or whatever that has the the holes for the the cables that you can put through it it sent up a vine out of those holes and then the end of the the vine was just growing you know open air on the side you know hanging off the side of the tank in you know apartment non-humid air and so it'll grow on whatever you know cork panels or you know the the press cork the the um feather rock or you know that that pumice lava rock stuff that people use or even you know the the quar pressed um you know foam foam mounds uh as long as it has something that it can derive moisture and nutrients from along the vine somewhere i i found that for the most part they can be pretty hardy now there's some species like i brought up the serrated leaf species that are beautiful i think those come from really high elevation and they need really pure water and significant nighttime drops because the only people I've ever seen successful keeping them are, are up like in the Pacific Northwest where they're naturally very humid, but also naturally, you know, cool. Hmm, I, I never would have thought about a night drop, but it makes, it makes perfect sense when you think about how cold some of these places can get at night. Yeah. I mean, you get into the, the Andes or some of the high elevation Ecuadorian and, and Colombian areas. And, and there's some stuff that, we couldn't grow in or, or yeah i guess grow in in typical dark frog conditions it's just too hot and too stable of, of temperatures 
in the last episode where we uh, dealt with aroids, I kind of gave you a hypothetical situation where we had a terrarium and we wanted to stock it with aroids and light it appropriately and have the substrate. Obviously, we can't have a terrarium that's got nothing but Mark Ravi and it's obviously it's not practical or anything like that. But uh, why don't we do the same thing? Why don't we say we've got a nice, decent sized front opening vivarium? Let's say uh, what I said last time, I think it was 36 by uh, 18 by 36. So we've got a nice, decent size and we want to add Mark Ravi to complement some of the other plants. Let's just say that, um, let's just say we have some aroids in there. Um, maybe a few bromeliads. I mean, obviously all these plants don't necessarily coexist at the same way we have them in a vivarium in our homes, but where would be some good choices for Macravia and like, where would we want to plant it inside the vivarium and what sort of lighting exposure would we need to get it going? So I, I would start it low. Yeah, but it would be strictly a background or a some of the branches in a hardscape plant. You know, where I mentioned in the previous episode, um, either, you know, like where I mentioned with the varicosum growing straight up the background, it, it can do that or it can grow up whatever thickness of, of branch or, or driftwood that you want to use. Uh, you know, I have some that that cover some of the center wood pieces in in the tank uh, most of my tanks don't have backgrounds so i don't i don't have you know that to grow up but i'll put them you know at the base of a piece of wood or something like that and just let it kind of scramble across and starting it low kind of allows it to do its own thing in terms of the light that it needs i found that they can take pretty decent light because they'll grow all the way up to the top of the tank and it's not until they get to the tippy top that they kind of burn. But the I guess the kind of good thing about them is they'll get to the top and either, you know, that's a really dry spot or it's a really, you know, bright and dry spot. And so the tip may burn and, and you'll lose, you know, the, the growth tip in the last couple of leaves. The plant's not dead. It just acts, activates a bud in one of the other leaf axles near the top and it'll start growing horizontal or, or, you know, perpendicular to the, the previous vine in a horizontal fashion across the background or, or, you know, diagonal across wood. And that's really how you get the, the full look of a Margravia. It's that, that plant will grow in a straight line as long as you allow it. If, if conditions are good, it's going to grow straight up in a perfect straight line and not branch until it can't anymore. And so, in order to promote the kind of crisscross look that, that you can get in them, it, it's okay that the tip dies back or it's okay that, that you clip it and you know, you either propagate out the clipping or you put the clipping back down at the bottom and you start a new vine. And, and, you know, as you trim it, you start to develop that look of, you know, this, this vine kind of crisscrossing throughout the tank. It almost looks, yeah, it almost looks like little, uh, like stitches. I think that's what's, you know, it's funny because in a vivarium, everything is, I mean, let's be realistic here in nature, everything is kind of chaotic and not, nothing really grows in straight lines. And I think that the fact that Makravi actually does kind of satisfies that compulsive need for order that all <laughs> of us have when we plant things. Yeah. I've always thought of it as kind of a, a, a train track, but now that I'm visualizing that, that stitches or a zipper is probably a better visualization. 
Yeah, I like this. I think the zipper is the is is the best. <laughs> Zippers. So, if you were beginning with Macravia, do you have some species or some forms that you'd recommend to a beginner that would be hardy and and easy to start off with? Yeah, I mean, you've got the the staple that's that's cheap and easy and still gives a good look in that species Suriname. It's not real flashy. It's a green vine that, you know, primarily has green leaves its entire life. So it's not, I think people have kind of grown out of it because it, it is common and, and it's not the flashy stuff that we have now, but, you know, it was the hot thing 10 years ago, uh, but it, it's virtually indestructible. And it's one that if you want to learn on, you can get it cheap and, and you can really figure it out with that one. Um, an alternative to that is if you can find the real rectiflora, rectiflora, rec, yeah, rectiflora, um, it grows just as easily as species Suriname, but the new leaves are kind of bronzy and it does get far bigger leaves than species Suriname. The problem is somewhere along the line, we've kind of lost rectiflora because the, the labeled Rectiflora ended up on a plant or a number of plants of species Suriname. So people think those names are interchangeable. But at one time, there was, in, in my opinion, a far nicer plant that was actually Rectiflora. Um, but both of those are, are great for beginners to, to get started. And, and they're pretty easy and, and well known the conditions needed for them at this point. Umbolata is probably the next easiest and, and most available. And with that one, you start to get the, you know, it's got these, this white central vein and it kind of looks dusted with this glaucous color and, and really can produce a, a nice show. And it, it's not a difficult plant to grow. Uh, and then from there, I'd venture into some of the, the Ecuadorian forms, the, you know, red umbelata is a really nice one. There's a number of similar to umbelata plants that those are pretty much all the same care level. Uh, there's a peach one or, or pink, people call it one or the other. Um, I hesitate to recommend Centenicii. It's great looking and it's not overly hard once you dial it in, but I've had plants growing in identical conditions and one just fills up a tank and then in the tank next door to it, it's filling it up one day and then just totally defoliates the next. So <clears throat> there's something a little finicky with that one, but it's another really nice one that's been around for a while. It's, it's relatively attainable. Um, so those are the, the kind of more common ones. If you want to spend the money on something like El Coca, it's it's in super high demand, both from terrarium people and also it's caught on in the houseplant world. So it's a, a, a three figure plant. A lot of times it's not overly hard to grow, though. So I guess that's the benefit. It, it's it's slow, but it's not something that's going to drop dead on you. So um, if you want that look and, and you're OK spending that money, it's not a hard plant and, and it is really nice. What about competition with other plants? And some plants just just really like take off. I mean, a good a good example. I know it's a horrible plant, but uh, 
golden pothos, uh, the ubiquitous pothos, which actually isn't even a pothos, that'll just take off overnight and it'll kind of take over the take over the whole vivarium or something like, say, uh, like ficus pamilia. I mean, a lot of the more common plants that grow real easily. Now, macravia, because it doesn't really bush up or, I mean, it essentially just grows in a straight line. If you have other plants in the vivarium, how do you want to keep them pruned so that the macravia isn't completely overwhelmed by them? In general, it's pretty nice to its neighbors and it can handle, um, it doesn't necessarily, it, it seems pretty adaptable to light, so it can handle shading, but it can also handle, you know, a decent amount of light. So it's not going, I, I kind of look at it like the the nicer ficus pumilla. It's not nearly as aggressive as that. It provides a similar look though. It will grow similar to that, but it takes a lot longer. And it's it's not something that you're going to be, you know, trimming once a week. It's something that you might trim every couple months. Uh, and it's like I said, it's more to, you know, you trim it early on to kind of promote that those axial growths more than you're trimming it because it's overrunning anything. And, and kind of the other way around. If you've got, you know, I, I try to because it's growing up a background it's not going to have constant competition with anything unless you've got it planted with something like ficus pumilla or um, there's that, that ficus punctata or, or some of those other ones that grow similarly, you know, so it kind of gets away from competition on its own because if you have a aeroid that's blocking its light, it's only going to be until it, shingles past it or if you have a you know a gisneriad or a begonia that's kind of clumping in its way it'll eventually you know grow beyond it and and come out on the other side it, it's not if it gets shaded for you know five leaves or so it's really not it might grow a little slower for a little bit but it'll pick back up once it gets on the other side yeah i'm just trying to think of the logistics behind uh, i mean because obviously they're so visually appealing but I'm just trying to think of the logistics of how to, like, how to showcase what's essentially a, I guess, a background plant. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would, if, if you have a background and, and you like that look, I would pick a species that you really like and dedicate either the background or some woodwork within the tank to, you know, that species with maybe some, you know, some clumping gisneriads or something or even bromeliads, you know, in certain places, you know, you can plug them in and they're not going to get in the way of it and it's not going to get in the way of them. But I wouldn't, you know, build the Margravia terrarium and put 15 different forms of, of you know, Margravia in one tank and expect them all to, to look good or do well. It'd be like the Hunger Games, like every, yeah, <laughs> like right. the last man standing. <laughs> you know, earlier you had mentioned nutrients and obviously nutrients are an important part of, um, of, of any living thing's growth, but the rainforest soil and environment isn't typically what we would consider rich in nutrients by, uh, I guess, by other standards. But how do these plants manage to do so well in the absence of more nutrient-rich soil or, or something like, I mean, for example, let's just take uh, like tomato plants. Like I was trying to explain to someone that I can grow a lot of these exotic tropical plants a lot easier than I can grow a tomato plant. So 
How, how does that work with the, with the nutrients? So I, I think some of it is they've just evolved to be more efficient with their, with their, you know, nutrient processing. Rainforest soils don't contain, you know, don't store nutrients that well, but they're also always processing. I guess nutrients don't ever sit stagnant in a rainforest system. You know, you have, you lose, a tree loses leaves. Most of the trees are evergreen, but they're always shedding leaves. So there's leaves that hit the forest floor. And so that's a nutrient input, but things are, the conditions are just so, um, you know, the, the, the conditions are so conducive to bacterial growth and, and invertebrate growth that you end up with, uh, the, the nutrients just cycle very quickly. So, so if a plant is there and able to access those nutrients, they can grab them quickly. But then the other part of it too is I think these plants just don't need the nutrients that say a tomato plant needs. If you look at, you know, knowing if you take a Mark Gravia, it starts rooted in the soil. It hits a tree, say, you know, the buttress of a, of a tree in, in the rainforest, and then it starts to grow up the tree. There are nutrients that as it rains are are shed from the bark and everything else and, and the fissures of the tree. And as the rain comes down the, the bark of the tree, the roots that the Margravia put down are able to access those those nutrients there. It's a similar thing to, you know, an orchid that lives on on a tree in a rainforest. Or most of the time these rainforest, cloud forest orchid species are highly sensitive to water quality and high levels of nutrients or high levels of certain um, ions are bad and will actually burn the roots. And that's because those roots are adapted to not be exposed to that. So if something similar is happening in Margravia or aeroids or something like that, they're just better at processing the little amount of nutrients they actually have access to. That's interesting. I was I was reading an article not too long ago about the different contents of, of rainwater and how the nutrient like I wouldn't I I guess I shouldn't say nutrient level, but the chemical composition of rainwater can vary so much, even in a certain area, that I guess it would stand to reason that you know, I guess you're right, if they were able to draw a lot of the nutrients from I guess non conventional sources other than nutrient rich soil, that would make um, that would definitely make for an evolutionary advantage. Yeah, I mean, you look at there's plants that are in the rainforest that actually have roots that grow. They're epiphytes, but they have roots that grow upward and they form a basket. And and the point of them is to capture leaf litter in this root basket because then the leaf litter decomposes and they have access to those nutrients all to themselves. You know, th those leaves don't make it to the floor to, to decompose. They decompose and they're in contact with those roots already. So you know, life finds a way there's, there's, you know, things either adapt to being able to grow with having very little nutrients, or they just become really efficient at processing what they do have access to. That is so ingenious. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just picturing <laughs> that right now. It's like, it's like something out of like Jurassic Park or, um, uh, I don't, I'm just picturing every science fiction movie. Now I'm picturing this plant with, roots growing up to catch uh, to catch leaf litter in a little basket 
Yeah, if you look up, it's it's an orchid genus. It's Stanhopia, and it occurs in, in Central America. And it has roots that anchor it to a tree, but then it has kind of secondary roots that, that basically form a basket. And then there's all there's an orchid in, I think it's Borneo, somewhere in, in Southeast Asia, uh, Bulbophyllum baccarii. It grows in a manner, the, the new growths on it are kind of stairway shaped. You know, it, it, it's almost like a spiral staircase and the leaves are, are cup shaped. And it does the same thing, except the cups of the leaves are where it traps, you know, falling leaves. And then they decompose in the leaf cups and, and feed the, the, the roots along the stem there. And people grow. It also holds moisture at the roots. And so some of the people that are really successful at growing that species will take moist sphagnum and, and stick it in the, the leaf cups so that, you know, it, it gives you the same kind of fertilization through decomposition, but also maintains moisture at the, the roots as well. That's amazing. I, I, I've always, I love stuff like that. And now I'm just, now I'm picturing the plant eating people. I'm just picturing, it's going to want to go off topic, but I'm just picturing this like turn of the century scientist with uh, his pith helmet and his magnifying glass, you know, stroking his white beard, looking over and ending up in the clutches of some man eating plant. Yeah. What is it? Little shop of horrors. The, the, yeah. the big yeah. Venus fly trap. Yeah. Audrey too which was um, every time we have a, I get, I'm sorry if I'm going off topic, but every time we have an eclipse, which is fairly regularly, but every time we have an eclipse, I always post a picture of Audrey too, because that was, uh, that was what took place in the story was there was an, there was a total eclipse of the sun. And then the plant showed up uh, right in front of Seymour Crowborn. Actually, no, it wasn't in front of him. It was at a, the shop that he bought it from. But anyway, uh, just, just to, just to go back onto, onto the rails here. Um, uh, last, the last question I want to ask, um, in the, in the past episode we did about aroids, we talked about creating a biome that was, uh, very specific to a certain area. Uh, you said a lot of the aroids that we have in the vivarium trade came in from Ecuador and certain other places. If we were to set up a, a vivarium with McGravia and we wanted it to sort of be true to the biome. Is there a specific frog that would go well with Magravia just because they would inhabit the same areas? I mean, I know you mentioned Central America, and I mean, to my knowledge, I don't know of any dart frogs that are in the Caribbean, but I know some of the outlying islands have a lot of the Pamilio locales. If you wanted to really, really be a, a, like a hardcore purist here and put Magravia in with a frog that would naturally occur with it, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, so you've got um, you know there's the the species from Costa Rica that 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 ABG species. So you know that that could go with you know blue jeans, black jeans, Brebre pamilio, uh, you know the the granulifera. Uh, what is it? Philobates. The um, oh man, it, it's. It, it, it's the it's got the orange stripes and the bluish legs I, I can't believe i went blank oh um, um i'm going blank as well so don't feel don't feel so bad um it's it's the it's the gold effusion why can't i remember the common yes name? yes the, the gulf yeah um but but you know you could do that with those with the costa rican uh species of mark gravia there's the the species suriname um occurs you know, a lot of the tinks come from Suriname. Uh, there's plenty of species from Ecuador. So that's, you know, tricolor, Anthony, I, 
um, Sylvatica. There's some Colombian species. So there's your Histrionica, your other Phytlobates. Um, you have some, there's a, there's a, at least one umbilata form that came from Peru. So there's your thumbnails and the Amarega and, um, I'm drawing a blank on the other Peruvian species, but yeah, for the most part, um, outside of, you know, if you wanted to be a hardcore purist, I don't think we have a Mark Gravia from Panama. I don't think we have a confirmed Mark Gravia from Nicaragua. Um, you know, and then some of the, you know, the, the Guianas in Brazil, the species Suriname probably grows there. Um, but you know, we don't know for sure. So yeah, for the most part, you can get a, a, a biotope and use a Mark Gravia with most of the frogs that are available in the hobby. Yeah, now I'm intrigued because I, I, I had a clipping of Mark Gravia a few years ago that didn't particularly do very well, and I didn't, I didn't pursue it further. But now I'm intrigued, and I want to get my hands. I want to get my hands on some. <laughs> so, I mean, bef- before we end, um, and it's it's been very very insightful. And again, if you if you're listening and you haven't caught the last episode where we discussed aroids, I mean, obviously aroids are a bigger group. We got into a little bit more detail. Um. What do you think the future holds for not just well we could address aroids as well but not just not just macravia but aroids and um a lot of the vivarium plants that we're seeing now are we going to see more variety and diversity available in the hobby as time progresses I think a lot of that is dependent upon how we come out of you know what what we've been in the last couple of years you look at you know social media has driven a lot of this influx in new material even before we we dealt with all of the covid stuff but in my experience you know since we kind of shut everything down and everybody kind of went home and had to stick to solitary hobbies the the plant hobby and and from what i've heard the all of the animal hobbies have just exploded and so there's this or, or, you know, if you'd asked me in tw- into 2020, there's this huge demand for, you know, whatever's next, you know, it, whether it's new dart frogs, whether it's new plants, you know, people were, were consuming it. And then 2021, it's still crazy compared to five years ago, but that's sort of leveled off as people have sort of kind of ventured out and, and moved back to, to what we knew was normal. And so, you know, do, as we continue that way, hopefully do more and more people kind of, it, it was a passing fad or did we hook some people and, you know, they really like plants and, you know, they're, they're really hooked on these frogs and, and maybe the hobby continues to grow. They add more and, and there's a, a stabilization. So I think, you know, as long as we can continue enthusiasm about these things and, and people, you know, continuing to want more plants and and you know driving that that you know kind of what we talked about before that new thing you know the need for new things that got to catch them all we kind of frame that as a bad thing but it also has opened up doors to 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 have new plants and and have exposure to new stuff and as long as 
you know, that's done in a sustainable manner from habitat, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so I, I think, you know, Margravia, in my experience in plants from the dart frog hobby, there is an ebb and flow in popularity in plants. And kind of when I started, orchids were the, the thing. And everybody was trying to figure out how to put orchids in dart frog terrariums. And if somebody tried to sell orchids to dart frog hobbyists, they, they flew off the shelves. And then as orchids kind of waned, that's when the Margravia craze kind of kind of went in. And then, you know, somewhere along the line, different bromeliads kind of took off. And you saw all of these, you know, you, you ventured away from the neo fireballs and you went to more obscure neo resilias, but you also entered into Guzmania and Racinias and, and different kind of music to Lanzias. And that kind of died off and went back to neos and and then you went to aeroids. So you know what's gonna be the the new thing that that rides the wave into the cycle? I think it's kind of the, you know, do we go back to Margravia? Does Margravia stay stable? Do people get tired of it and we move into something else? I think, you know, just like dart frogs, the popularity of, of a genus is cyclical. I think the popularity of, of plants that, that, that people, you know, got to have is also cyclical. Right now we're in this aeroid craze, but, you know, we, we've been through plenty of others before. So, um, It'll be exciting to see where we go, but I don't know that anybody can say for sure right now what that's going to be. I'm pretty confident that it's going to be man-eating plants from outer space. I think that's going to be. <laughs> I would I would get your greenhouse ready because I think that um, that's the future. That's definitely the future, <laughs> and there won't be any shortage of of people for it to eat. So let's. <laughs> All right, Zach. Why don't you just give us another. Um, another rundown of uh, where people can get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you to get some plants or if they can find you on social media. Yeah. So I'm, I'm most active on Instagram at equatorial underscore ecosystems. I also do have a website. It's equatorial dash ecosystems.com. And if you go to my, my Instagram, there's a link to that. And there's also a link to an email address um you can I, I have a facebook page but it's not the the equatorial ecosystems facebook page isn't as active but you can if you're looking for plants you can always message my personal page which is zachary good now very good very good all right i want to thank zach for a as usual a very enlightening episode i hope you guys enjoyed this little brief two-part series and uh you know if you guys have interests in anything else uh another group of plants a genera a family a species or whatever uh we could always uh, do another another short series dedicated to that as well so uh feel free to reach out you guys know how to follow me on instagram at amphibicast and let me know if it's something you guys are interested in we could definitely do more i always enjoy this type of content because i think that it's fun to not only just address frogs salamanders whatever but also the environments that we keep them in captively so and it's helping me become a better uh, better uh, plant uh caretaker i guess you could say so all right enough about all that Uh, i want to thank you guys as usual for listening catch up with you again soon